MailChimp presents. Ever heard of a customer? You know, it's when marketers group all their customers, regardless of their different behaviors, into one big mess. But with MailChimp, you can use real-time behavior data to personalize emails for every customer based on their browsing and buying behavior, turning your customers into customers. Intuit MailChimp, the number one email marketing and automations brand. Based on competitor brands' publicly available data on worldwide numbers of customers in 2021 and 2022. Availability of features and functionality vary by plan, which are subject to change. sort of feel like I get to be a part of watching America change and watching my daughter be part of the insistence that America change. Nagin Farsad is a comedian, a podcast host, a writer, and a very fun person. Her parents immigrated to the United States from Iran before she was born and eventually made their way to California, where she and her older brother grew up. Both of her parents worked incredibly hard to make a new life for their family, and they did what they set out to do. Nagin had a world of opportunity open to her. She now has a thriving career, she's married, and four years ago, she and her husband Jason had a daughter. She was still actively touring and performing while she was pregnant. Here she is talking about her baby-to-be and something that is central to her comedy, identity. I'll tell you about myself a little bit. I'm actually pregnant these days. Oh, thank you. Okay, there's a few of you who begrudgingly applause. Thanks. I also got married recently. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, we don't need to worry about the order in which these things happened. But anyway, he's actually uh, African-American, so... Uh, so he's black, I'm Iranian, that makes this baby a Bluranian. Um, she will be on the cover of all the brochures. And hopefully she's also a lesbian, fingers crossed, you know what I mean? No pressure. As a comedian, Nagin has found a lot to make fun of about her parents and the whole Iranian-American child of immigrants experience. But she has a lot of gratitude for the sacrifices her parents made. And when she decided to have a kid, those sacrifices were top of mind. I'm Ashley C. Ford, and this is Going Through It, a show about important moments in people's lives and how they navigate them. This season, we're asking how people decide whether or not to become parents. In this episode, I'm talking to Nagin Farsad about what happens when that decision is not just about you, but your whole family legacy. And she told me about a story she heard while she was pregnant. In many ways, we were like a traditional family. My mom was more of the communicator, more of the like person who kept the family together. And my dad was more stoic, like said less. And, you know, look, we were like an immigrant family with some of the kind of traditional patriarchal trappings of that. And one thing that was very clear from a very early age is that their level of sacrifice was sort of limitless. And that's something I felt all the time. Like they would truly do anything 
for their kids. And I had this like rare glimpse into my parents having any feelings when my father was like telling a story during dinner and one of my aunts was in town and we were all gathered. He was remembering when he brought me home from the hospital. My dad is a surgeon and he was at Yale Medical Center. I was born at Yale Medical Center. And he, you know, he had to redo some of his schooling because that's the thing that happens with immigrant doctors. And he had pulled one of these like 24-hour shifts or whatever that they used to do to doctors to torture them. And he finally meets me in the hospital. They bring me home. And he talks about like driving me home and then walking out. And and they had this like very modest little two-bedroom apartment on the first floor. And he comes out of the car and he lifts me up in the air and he says, this world is yours. And as my dad is telling that story, he starts to cry. And I've seen this man cry maybe one other time his entire life. And so I was just like shocked because I've never seen what they call emotion from this man. And so to see it and also for it to be about me and about this moment when I was a baby, you know, I always kind of saw my parents as just working at a factory, right? Like getting this family done, clocking in, clocking out. They were just such hard workers. Like that was my understanding of them as parents. So to hear that story kind of blew my mind on many levels. And I just sort of sat there in all of my pregnancy, kind of being like, well, uh, it's a good thing I'm having this baby, huh? Apparently, they've got beating hearts and they really care. So let's get this baby out and let's change their lives and let's add to this lineage. I think there is something to be said about the parents who reveal themselves to you selectively in those moments. Yes, And it always is passive. I feel like they're never telling that story to you. They're (laughs) always telling it to somebody else. I feel like I'm always just like eavesdropping on figuring out their lives. When you were growing up, did you feel like you wanted to have kids? Was that a feeling that came up inside you? I know myself, no, it did not. But as I got older, I had moments of feeling that way. Did you like hold a baby and smell their head and suddenly being like, oh no, what did that just do? I often wonder what would have happened to me on the parenting front if I had grown up in Iran, if I had grown up around what is in fact tons of family. I didn't have the tons of family here. You know, we were separated by thousands of miles. And so I didn't get to see the like generations of kids being born and the cousins and the holding the babies. Like I truly didn't hold any babies. And then to add to that weirdness is the fact that I grew up in Palm Springs, California, which is in fact a resort town. I was a townie in the desert of Southern California. Like people go to Palm Springs to play golf and and subsequently to die. Uh, So it's, (laughs) I was surrounded by senior citizens. It wasn't the kind of place that fostered a lot of like youth appreciation. You know what I mean? I went to college being like, did everyone not grow up around gay senior citizens? Like, cause that's what I grew up around. (laughs) Where are all the gay senior citizens? Right. But then, you know, I think, that I felt a tremendous sense of duty to my parents and their 
trials and tribulations, that the line wouldn't end with me. They didn't come right. to America so that I could like be a comedian, by the way, like an asshole, and then not have any kids. Like, what? I felt such a sense of duty that they struggled so intensely that my opportunities are orders of magnitude better than my cousin's. And that I can't squander that opportunity. And I didn't want to do that. The the duty really pulled at me. And, you know, my uterus was getting older. And I, <laughs> As they tend to do. I know. It's, it doesn't matter, like, how much collagen you take in your morning smoothie. That uterus will keep doing its growth. So it's like the increasing sense of duty, the aging uterus, all those things culminated. I still never felt that rush of whatever rush that people get when they see babies. Right. That never <laughs> happened for me. Did your family expect you to have children? Were they like, it's just a given, it's going to happen? Or were they more like, we'll see? It's so interesting because, first of all, no one ever told me not to have children, like, before it was the right time. Because I think that would require some sort of admission that the concept of sex exists. And there's still been no admission on that front, okay? So, oh, I mean, no. I'm pro- like, according, I'm still a virgin, okay, basically, according to any Iranian um, that's older than 55. So that conversation never happened. I, I was also, like, such a driven and dedicated nerd. My My parents knew that I was really serious about academics, that I was just really like driving myself into the ground, making sure that I got into the best schools, that I got the best grades, that I da da da. So I feel like they didn't actually need to put pressure on me for that stuff because I was a self-cleaning oven in that way. You know, they would say I have I have a a joke in my stand-up about how they would just be like, you can just go meet a man, you have a baby, and you give us the baby. You don't even have to see the baby. (laughs) They were just like, bang a stranger, leave the baby with us like we're a firehouse, (laughs) and walk away. And so I think they like really wanted one, but they also didn't want me to not have whatever career I thought I was going to have. So they were walking a fine line with themselves, I think. Okay, so fast forwarding a bit, you grow up, You meet your husband, and eventually you decide, yes, I'm going to have a child and continue the family line. Cool. So how was motherhood in those first few months? I mean, in many ways, it was like the worst possible time, and it like sort of (laughs) continues to be the worst possible time to like have a child because I'm a comedian, right? I'm on the road a lot, and I do shows all over the country, and I then had the baby, but there's no like— maternity leave for comedy. No, you know what is. I mean? <laughs> you just either like don't do gigs and don't earn money or you do gigs and you earn money. Like there's no... So I luckily had the baby before Christmas. So I had this kind of like two-week period where nobody was really expecting anything of anyone in the entertainment industry. And then literally like three weeks in, it was just like, 
I guess I have to go back to work. You know, because when you're a freelancer, you don't know when the next paycheck comes. You don't know what your next opportunity is. You just don't know. You have to be sort of available. And I have always felt this kind of pressure that has been transferred to me from immigrant parents of like, everything's going to fall apart and I'm going to be homeless in five seconds. Like, if I let one thing slip, it's all over. And that's the mentality that I was raised with. And so, like three weeks in, I was just like, yeah, what's the gig? Yeah, I'll totally do it. You know, I booked a couple of acting gigs. I was like pumping on set. My husband was in the final season of Homeland, which shot in Morocco. So he was in Morocco for like three months of my daughter's first six months. I would then like take her to gig. So I would go to like Indianapolis or whatever, and I would like meet a producer and within five minutes, I'd be like, um, sorry, what was your name? Uh, Carol? Great. Hey, Carol, can you take this baby? I'll be on stage for about an hour. <laughs> and then afterwards, I'll come grab that baby. <laughs> right. And it like it's like how we got it done in those early days before we really like had the apparatus and really figured out what it meant to have childcare and wow. to have two working parents and all that stuff. But luckily, you know, we're creative enough to be able to figure it out. We'll be right back. On Going Through It, our guests talk about the passions and decisions that impact them most. You can find similar stories on MailChimp's Bloom Season, a digital resource offering actionable insights for small business success. Throughout these episodes, I'll be introducing you to a few of the entrepreneurs featured in Plume Season. Anytime someone goes to Ghana, you tell them to bring you back Shay. Bring me back Shay and dry fish. You know? <laughs> Meet Abena Boma Achimpong. She first started making skincare products as an act of self-care during her time as a public school teacher from her stash of shea collected over the years. My name is Abna Bwama Champong. I am the founder and CEO of Hanahana Beauty. We're a consciously clean skincare beauty brand. Our mission is around how do we bring a level of humanity into the beauty space. We started with our most famous, our Shea Body Butters. But on the other end, we look at sustainability going from the producers we source from all the way to our communities and customers. Abena turned her passion into her business after receiving lots of product requests and encouragement from her family and friends. And like Abena, Hanahana Beauty is also firmly grounded in its Ghanaian roots. The name was actually inspired by my dad. He told me Hanahana, which is a slang tree dialect. I had never heard the name before. And he was telling me that Hanahana means something that's smooth, something that's malleable, something that's flowing. And so it just fit. Similarly, Abena's evolution into entrepreneurship was a natural progression. As a kid, we would go to Ghana, I would come back and I would have rocks that I collected from the beach and shells and literally just like paint it with clear nail polish and sell it on the side of the street. When thinking about scaling her business, there was one very key element at the center of her model. When I decided to actually go back to Ghana and source Roche, I did a lot of research around fair trade because the mission at the time that I wanted to set was disruption within the beauty space. And I felt that fair trade was the disruption. 
After connecting with a women's cooperative in Ghana who would supply the raw shea, Abena got to work creating a business that considered not only her customers and the environment, but also the people who were part of the process. I really started thinking about sustainability in a new way because it was like, for me to help sustain them means that I, as a brand, need to be intentional around our strategy and growth so that we can continue to buy and scale the buying also from them. So for us, it's paying two times the asking price for raw materials, as well as creating access to healthcare and optimization of production. Abana is a long way from her first career in education. But some similarities remain in her work. I've been really always focused around what does it look like to help people in the way that they want to be helped. Learn more about Abana Boma Achimpong and other entrepreneurs at MailChimp.com slash Bloom Season. And now, back to the episode. So how does your daughter fit into the legacy that your parents began by moving here? It's so interesting because, so my husband is Black, right? And I'm Iranian, American, Muslim. And just like her very existence touches on so many different parts of the globe. And it's so funny to me because I'm like, oh, you're not even three feet tall and you represent the entirety of the world. And I feel a very strong responsibility that she should know those things and she should celebrate those things. Like, that's so cool. And part of that, I think for me has been like, I speak to her in Farsi, you know, she speaks Farsi, she's bilingual. She also speaks Spanish because our nanny spoke Spanish and she continued in a Spanish language immersion program. And I grew up with three languages at home. And I kind of was like, I would love for her to grow up with three languages because that seems normal to me. And I'm like, you're a product of the globe and I want the way you live and feel to reflect that. So it's like she she had a passport by the time she was one month old and she had already taken her first international flight by the time she was two months old. And she lives in New York City, you know? Right. And She's actually that girl. She is like actually that girl. And she, you know, we walked to the apartment. There's like neighbors that'll say something to her in Spanish. There's a neighbor who for crazy reasons, speaks Farsi, even though he's, like, Russian. And so she's getting that experience so seamlessly, I think, just by by virtue of being here. What's she like? What's your daughter like? You know, it's funny because I'm, like, desperate for her to not be a comedian and to, like, not be any kind of performer and to, like, not enjoy the arts. You know what I mean? I just want her to be, uh, right. like, a chemist. I want her to be some sort of engineer. I want her to just have real career aspirations and not follow in her mother's footsteps. How's that working out for you? The problem is she is very funny. And <laughs> it's it. such a—it's t- terrible. She's also—she loves imitating people and things. She always goes for the joke. And I'm like, what? You're three. How do you even understand that you're doing a bit? But she does. There's like innately. I just, I did too much stand up with her in my womb. It was accidental early indoctrination. And it's funny too, because she gets upset when she doesn't do something correctly. And I'm like, oh, uh uh-oh, is that the immigrant? Did I give you an immigrant thing? Fuck. I may have accidentally given you an immigrant thing. But, you know, it's always interesting to see this little personality develop. The thing I love hearing 
about your family, the formation of it, the connections and and sense of, it feels like pride and duty you guys have for each other, is that it's also, it's a mixed race family. Yeah. And my husband's white. Yeah, yeah. okay, you're in one, okay. <laughs> you know, we got together during the Obama years. It was different. We all <laughs> thought something different was about to happen in the country. Right. And then we was just together, and I couldn't just get rid of them just because, <laughs> you know. Love is such a dumb thing, right? It's so annoying. It really annoying. is. Yeah. It's super annoying. But one of the things that is scary for me at this point, and I think is um, has been scary for him now that he's uh, fully, I think, had to deal with the concept, is the idea of having a Black child in America. It is just so scary for me personally to think about, let alone a black and brown kid, a black girl with a Persian name. Like, do you have any of that, that fear? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, I sort of feel like I get to be a part of watching America change and watching my daughter be part of the insistence that America change, right? Right. And also I feel that way of myself. Certainly, I think there were opportunities that I didn't get because I was just too ethnic or whatever. And that sucks. But I also feel like I just wasn't weeded out and I'm still here. And I think that's the great thing about what she gets to do is just be like, no, 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 no. I insist on it because I'm here. And I also think part of my own job, you know, I travel the country. And one of the projects I did, I, I went around the country and into like mostly red states and doing stand up with other Muslim comedians. And one of the things I found is that like Americans are open, they're kind, and they are welcoming. And I feel like when I say that, people look at me like, you're lying, you know, and it, but I'm not <laughs> no. lying. When you go and meet people in America, that's what happens. It's delightful. Right. Sure, there's crazies, but there's crazies like everywhere. And I'm not judging an entire population based on the crazies. That would be crazy. So I have such a, I have so much more optimism about Americans than I think like the media wants us to have because it's not clickbaity. Yeah. Like people are awesome is not clickbait. But I believe it. I feel it because I know she has got a community that we're building for her and then a community of Americans that she doesn't yet know that will stand up for her. And I feel it like in my bones. I meet those people. I know it to be true. Have you had any moments with your daughter, like the one your dad had with you, where you felt like you were introducing her to the world? I mean, it's it's dumb because I think I also even captured it on camera this moment, which is like that day that I was in Indianapolis and handed her to Stranger and all that stuff. We were in the theater before they opened the doors and I went on stage and I was like, oh, let's take a photo of her, one of her first gigs. And I was just sort of like, this is a stage and that's going to be hundreds of people. And I just remember thinking, this is so weird. She gets to like be in this theater and see this thing 
And this is a special thing. And the theater's so fucking cool. You know what I mean? Like, there's a feeling. It doesn't matter if you're in the arts or not. Like, when you walk into a theater, there's like a feeling. Yes. And everybody uh, has feelings about the stage. Everyone has feelings about the stage. And she got to, like, have her first feeling without even understanding it at such a young age. And it felt very cool. And now she's the funniest three-year-old anybody (laughs) has ever met speaking Farsi with her Russian neighbors. she's the funniest future engineer that anyone's ever met. (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes legacy can be crippling, a standard too lofty to live up to. But it can also be a call to step up, to explore, and to follow a path you might not otherwise have chosen in honor of those who came before you. Talking with Nagin makes me wonder how much more sure I might be about parenting a child if I were closer to my parents, or if I felt like I was bringing a child into a lineage that felt more like a legacy. No doubt, sacrifices were made by the people who raised me. But would it be special to any of them for me to become a parent? I don't know. And if it were, is that a good enough reason for me? I feel like the more questions I ask people about this, the more questions I have. But I think that's a good thing. So I'll keep asking my questions until I have my answers. Going Through It is a production of Pineapple Street Studios and MailChimp. Our producer is Emerald O'Brien. Our associate producers are Marina Hankey and Yinka Rickford Anguin. Our managing producer is Camila Kashani. The show is edited by Aaron Edwards. Mixing by Davey Sumner. Original music by Mike Noyce and Davey Sumner with additional music from Epidemic Sound. Mara Davis is our booker. We had help from Stephen Key, Jason Richards, and Ari Saperstein. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson de Rocher. Our executive producer is J.N. Barry. Our production partners at MailChimp Studios are Julie Douglas, Sasha Brown, Christina Humphrey, and Caroline Albro. And a special thanks to my better half, without whom none of this would be possible. My assistant, Ariane Young. And thank you for listening. We know the range of experiences around this decision is so broad. And while we can't cover every story, we're grateful that we could bring you a few of them. So you want to craft an email marketing strategy, but you're not exactly sure where to start. Why not take a cue from Pack Up and Go? It's a surprise travel company that reveals their clients' destinations on the morning of their trips. The folks at Pack Up and Go designed a marketing plan that would both answer customer questions while also building their brand. Here's how they did it. Pack Up and Go started by using their customer-generated content to show off all these amazing trips that they offer building a loyal community of fans in the process. 
And then they used MailChimp's segmentation capabilities and email automations to send targeted messages that reached relevant audiences, like an automated campaign to new customers, reminding them to purchase PackUp&Go's travel insurance. With MailChimp's help, the marketing team at PackUp&Go has created a plan that works for them. Start crafting your email marketing strategy today at MailChimp.com.